my Quran teacher, Sheikh Abdullah Deeb, might have come today. It doesn't look like he's going to make it, uh, but you never know. Maybe he'll show up, inshallah. But it doesn't seem like he's going to make it for anyone who's expecting him. They're hoping he would. And part of why I was really hoping for that is that we have now essentially completed chapter five of the Vorta. Um, there's one or two lines left, but I'll read them just for the sake of completion. They basically continue what we were already saying. So he says, إذا تتبعت آيات النبي فقد أنحقت منفخ من منها بمنفخني. If you follow the miracles of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, you will but add one splendor to another. If you were to look at the miracles of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, you'd find one after the other miraculous thing about him sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Then he finishes this section by saying. So he says, tell the one who tries to outstrip my praises of him, they are gifts. I did not exert myself in their composition. Don't ask me, how have you obtained such excellent verse? No one says of Allah's grace, how much exactly? But for Allah's divine concern, they would be the same, and one with a voice would be like one who is mute. So he's finishing the section with uh, a topic that we belabored already in the past about the idea of um, that anything that a person has is bifadlullah is by the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the generosity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And no matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much expertise we put into it, there's two things that are always true. One of them is that no matter how hard we work, it's still Allah's fatih, still Allah's bounty and mercy. And... Uh, and the second thing is, no matter how hard we work, we're never perfect. We'll always make mistakes, no matter how. Like We can train ourselves to be as accurate and as consistent and as perfect as possible, and still we will always make mistakes. And this is why uh, Imam al-Shafi'i had said about his own book, you know, he spent so much time writing it, so much time perfecting it, so on and so forth. And then there were some critiques about it, and he said, Allah has willed that no book will be perfect except for his. It doesn't matter how, how wonderful the person is or how talented they are, how all of it is faulty from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's all Allah's mercy and bounty. And we can have so much and it can go away and we can have nothing and it can come. You know, I've been thinking about, some of you may have noticed this week that there was a big philanthropy uh, donation. I believe it was Jeff Bezos ex-wife, you know, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But in any case, she gave a bunch of money to a bunch of organizations. And a number of them are Muslim organizations. So like Iman, we were talking about earlier, Iman in Chicago got $10 million. She dropped $10 million. No way. Imagine like you're just doing your community work and then all of a sudden this lady calls you and she's like, so uh, can we get that tax ID number? Here's $10 million. You go, yeah, this is subhanAllah. Like, you can come. And it, I mean, Alhamdulillah, Iman is a very big organization and done a lot of amazing work. They, they definitely, in some way, have a track record, you know, but nonetheless, it's a lot of money. And then, of course, many of us probably have family members and stuff who come from places where you left them as refugees or, and, you know, maybe ancestors were forced from lands and stuff like that. And, you know, like how, how everything you have can become nothing so quickly. Um, Even like, you know, sometimes I think about you get a headache, you know, like everything is good. I get, I get migraines sometimes. So it's like everything is good, everything's good, it's fine. And then one day you have a migraine. You're completely useless. <laughs> you know, like no matter how much you try, you're pretty much useless. You can get something like, like uh, when I got this cut on my hand, that, you know, on these rugs somewhere. Um, 
like there's so many things I couldn't do for like two weeks while this thing is just like this random little cut on my hand is healing. Your toe starts to hurt and like you can't you can't walk around anymore. There's so many things that go into everything that we do that and there's so many things that can go wrong. And I think as adults, sometimes we we forget this because we learn to depend on ourselves and we learn to take care of things and so on and so forth. But when you when you're a parent and you have a child, like one of the things I thought about when when our children, I mean, Zakia's still younger, but like especially when they're really small, it's like you understand a little bit this idea that like parents have rights even when they're not good parents. Like we're not getting into abuse and how to deal with complicated situations. And so that's not the point. The point is, if you're alive, it took a lot. <laughs> anyone, anyone who has a child knows. Like if the child is alive, it took a lot. There were a lot of opportunities for that to not go well. There are a lot of opportunities for mistakes. There are a lot of times when like you weren't paying attention and like something happened. Like you were, you know, you were at the thing and then your daughter was on the chair and then she got down and she kicked the thing with fire in it and the fire landed on the rug and like this stuff happens all the time. And then like my son came and stepped on the coal. You know, <laughs> he's like Baba who's fire here. Like it's not even like how many times that happens a million times when you're trying to raise a child. So it's like literally you see in front of your eyes, Lola Fadullah. This is not even if it was not for Allah's mercy, that's animating all of these things it just wouldn't happen like there's so many possibilities subhanallah that the process of of, of of the child growing in the womb of the mother and you watch it and you're like so many things can happen along the way so many things can happen at delivery so many like i remember the first night when we took ismail home and he's like laying in the crib the, the crib he's like so small and i couldn't sleep so I was like, there's no way that thing can like live. <laughs> it's so, so little. And like, what if he just, I don't know, like decides it's not breathing or something? Like, it's just, it doesn't. Of course, the second one, your perspective changes. You understand everything now. Oh, uh, yeah, she's going to be fine. It's all right. <laughs> you know? But it's just subhanAllah, it's Allah's fault. So going back to the verses of the poem, he's saying, like, if you ask me, how did I write these lines of poetry or whatever, like, this is just Allah's bounty. You don't ask. Like when Allah gives something, He gives something. If He doesn't give it, He doesn't give it. If He gives it, He gives it. You don't ask. It's just, you know, you just worship Him, subhanAllah. So that ends chapter five and it brings us to chapter six, which, you know, this is why I was hoping, I thought it was going to be a muafaqa, an issue of tawfiq, if Sheikh Abdullah was able to come. Chapter six is on the nobility of the Quran and its merit. You know, the nobility of the Quran. And its merit. So this section goes into basically the Quran. So before this, right, the chapter before this is on the miracles of the prophets and Allah. And there's this chapter that's specifically on the Quran, which is the greatest miracle, of course, of the prophets and Allah. It's a long section. And then the chapter after that is on the Isra al-Mi'raj, on the night journey and ascension of the prophets and Allah. And then it's on the jihad of the Prophet ﷺ, which also in some ways is a miracle. When you look at the way that he lived his life ﷺ, and some of the battles that he went through and stuff, there's many miracles in that as well. And then the poem kind of closes. So we're getting, we're getting further. You can see there's, we're past halfway now. I'm doing much. 17 sessions in today. We're past halfway. We're getting there. Be patient. I know some people, 17 sessions is a long time for people now. People like to like know, okay, we're going to do this class. It's going to finish in four sessions. We're going to do this one. It's going to finish in five sessions. And sometimes people don't like that, that we don't really do that as much here. But uh, it's not the way, it's not what we saw from our teachers. So we don't like to do it. Like, you know, you take the text, you teach the text. If it takes 15 sessions, it takes 15. If it takes 20, it takes 20. If it takes three, it takes three. But, you know, we're going to finish this, inshallah, if Allah gives us life, even if nobody's, even if people stop coming and stuff, we're going to finish it because it's the Buddha and it deserves to be finished and it's an important work. So chapter six, the nobility of the Quran. Dani wa wasfi ayatin lahu zaharat zuhura nara qira laylan ala alami. Let me describe to you the signs that were manifested for him, visible like the village beacon light, beacons lit atop hills at night. 
So he's starting now this section on the Quran. He says, let me describe to you these verses that were came to the Prophet and they were visible like the village beacons at nighttime. So there's, it's nighttime, you're not in the city, there's no artificial light, and, or there's no electricity, and uh, you're traveling and you can see the lights in this village in the, in the nighttime very clearly. This is the way that the verses of the Quran are. Is the signs that came to the Prophet are clear signs in this way. Uh, there's a story that we heard from some people that we know. That they were um, they were leaving uh, they were they were leaving the, their country. They were forced to leave their homeland. So we heard this story from them. It's like direct narration. One person. And talk to the person who actually witnessed it. They said they were leaving their homeland, they were forced to leave, and they were traveling through the mountains at nighttime. And as they were traveling through the mountains at nighttime, they uh, looked down in the valley and they saw what looked like some lights, very clear lights. And uh, so they thought, okay, maybe there's like a village here, we can get some food, maybe some shelter because they're traveling for almost two weeks through the mountains. Um, so they, they go down, their guide, they go down into this valley to where the village was. And when they do that, they don't find any, like there's nothing there except for dead bodies. It's a little bit gruesome, but not really because you know we believe in other realities. These people were uh, killed by oppressors, right? So they, they all, the, all there was in this valley was the bodies of these people. But from the mountain, they looked like beacons of light. Like the bodies of the shuhada were glowing. That when they were walking, they literally saw the, the bodies of these people glowing. And they looked down on them, and then when they went down, all they found was these people who had passed away. So this reminds me of that. Though a pearl is more lovely when strung, its value is not diminished when alone and unstrung. So he says, basically what he's saying is that all of the miracles of the Prophet them in and of themselves, they're beautiful. And they're more beautiful when you look at them all together. Every miracle is beautiful in and of itself. It's like a pearl necklace. But each of the pearls in the necklace is beautiful. And then when you make a necklace out of it, it's even more striking. So he says, to what hope can the giver of praise aspire of doing justice to his noble qualities and traits? To what hope can the giver of praise aspire of doing justice to his noble qualities and traits? I believe that we have a challenge at times when it comes to understanding the Prophet that relates to our current uh, social environment, social cultural environment. And I'll give you um, a small example of this, is that if you notice now, like when you watch movies, the hero, this is part of the making them human thing. The hero is always complicated. Um, they're not a hero you can actually like fully respect. They're a hero that has some sort of like major flaw, uh, something that you have an issue with, but they're still heroic. Right? And so they do something amazing, but they have some they have something that's really questionable at the same time. And of course, that's, there's truth in that. People can do amazing things and have other things that are less inspiring. But for someone that we really look up to, that's not what we expect from them, right? Like, like we expect that they can make mistakes, but they'll be smaller mistakes. They're not gonna be like major character flaws. Like it's very common in these in these movies, American actually movies, even old ones, the whole like lone cowboy, they go through, uh, there's a series of them. There's the lone cowboy, and then there's the hard-nosed detective. 
They're the same character, just different setting. They're by themselves. They do it their way. They have a problem with authority. They can never maintain their family. They have to go by themselves and leave people at the end because like the burden of having a wife is too much. And like, you know, it's very uh, it's standard across all of it. But then in the, and if you come to like now, it'll, it'll take it a step further. Even. Like make the person have some sort of corruption in them, but they're still the hero. And then, uh, so what that does is it, it skews things for us. We start to think like, no, there can't actually be good people that don't have serious flaws. And that's a problem. Partially because we start, then we change the standard we hold ourselves to. So now because like there's no such thing as good people who don't have serious character flaws, then it's okay if I do some good things and I also have serious character flaws, right? No, it's not okay. We shouldn't try, that shouldn't be something like we're lazy with. To try to not do that, and we can overcome that. And uh, the Prophet ﷺ, of course, was a perfect human being. It's even harder to understand. But the people who inherit the way of the Prophet ﷺ after him uh, also do not have these things. Like the great, the great saints or the great scholars who act upon their knowledge. It's a very important condition. They're not a scholar if they don't act upon their knowledge. They you won't find them do this. They're not, it's not like they'll never make a mistake. They'll make mistakes, but the mistake will not be a major thing and it will be something that they correct. So it won't be like they say something wrong or they do something wrong and someone reminds them and their response is to like blow up and act like, you know, whatever inappropriate thing that is in some sort of way that's totally inappropriate. What am I saying all this? To what hope can the giver of praise aspire of doing justice to his noble qualities and traits? Because like we're trying to explain the noble qualities and traits of the Prophet but because of this, um, this issue that I'm talking about, we actually get gray on what noble traits are in the first place. Like what does honor actually look like? What does nobility actually look like? What does generosity actually look like? Are these actual real things? Or are they just like, you know, I gave someone a ride and I didn't ask them for gas money because now I'm, mashallah, like a really generous person. Uh, things get really mixed up. Um, we were watching a movie the other day. I really liked it. It's called Captain's Courageous. Captain's Courageous. It, it was originally made in the 30s and then it was remade in like, I don't know, somewhere in the last 20, 30 years. Um, uh, we watched it because there's, a, there's a, a kid who falls overboard and he gets saved by a sailing ship off the banks of Newfoundland. I was like trying to find a movie like that. And it's interesting because the kid, I won't give it away in case you watch it. My son liked the movie, he watched it twice. He said, uh, but something interesting happened. There's a kid in the story comes in with all these behavioral issues, right? He's a spoiled kid, rich family, whatever. Never had any, and actually his parents died. It's a complicated story, but he was spoiled. And as he's on the ship and he has to like live with these sailors and they're not gonna give him like, like the captain tells him, if you're gonna be on the ship, you only have two choices. Either you're on the ship or you're in the water. If you're on the ship, if you're gonna eat and have a place to sleep, then you have to work. There's no other choice. So this kid has to work and he starts to like learn what it means to work and what it means to like face an obstacle and get past it and go through challenges and be patient and overcome himself and like all this kind of stuff, right? And as we're watching this movie, my son, he looks at me and he's like, he's gonna mess it up, isn't he? And I was like, subhanAllah. You know, like that's, that's a different, that's a difference in generation. Think about how the content that we watch, it, it affects us, it really does. And he looked at it, he's like, he's gonna mess it up, isn't he? And I was like, no, this is an old movie. I think he's gonna be okay. We watched the end of the movie and everything was fine. Like he keeps he keeps improving, he keeps going, and then it ends, has a happy ending and it moves on. You know, I was like, this is a very different uh, thing, you know. So what happens is we start to lose sight of what it means actually to be noble. How do we even praise the prophets and Allah and the Sunnah? We don't even know what that looks like. Like we read all these things about the one of the things that I like about I liked about uh, that series, Earth to Grow. You can make your critiques and whatever is not the point. The point is, 
we hear about a lot of stuff in classes and things. We don't ever see it. Right? Like we don't actually ever see it. We don't see what like true loyalty looks like. And then you watch the series and you're like, oh, that's what loyalty looks like. You don't see what it means to have like a really strong woman and a really strong man standing next to each other and like each kind of doing their own thing. And then you see Suleiman Shah and you see Mother Jaime and you're like, oh, I see like there's, there's a way that that works, you know? Um, you see certain like how, how to inter interact with different situations and like deal with them and stuff. It's, it's like fleshed out in a sense. It's not just theory anymore. But part of the challenge with these things, when we talk about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, like, how do we, like, where do we see the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? And this is, uh, you know, we talked about it in chapter three, this idea that, uh, that all of them are taking from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Some are taking scoops from the ocean and some are taking drops from the dew. But everyone is taking from the Prophet But like, where do we, are we able to see that? We're able to say, for example, like you see someone smile at someone and you think that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the Prophet Not just this abstract of like, that's the Sunnah, but like, that's the Prophet. That's, that's, the, that's the imprint of the Prophet you see someone show some patience. That's the imprint of the Prophet some generosity. Some, but where do we see that? So unless we see it, it's hard to even start to get an understanding of what those things are. And that's part of also the reason why community is so important. It's going to be very tough to see it if we're not around people. But you have a community of people who are committed to some sort of attempt, at least like, okay, here's a baseline. We're going to try to do some things from this baseline. Then if I get in a group of 100 Muslims, it's likely that at least a handful of them are going to have some major influence of the Prophet on them. If they're like serious Muslims and there's 100 of them, there's going to be some, at least. And then you can see it. So like, SubhanAllah, look at that. That humility, that generosity, that kindness. Uh, these kind of things. آيات حق من الرحمن محدثة قديمة صفة موصوفة قدم. Signs of truth from the All Merciful revealed within time yet pre-eternal. The attribute of Him who is pre-eternal. Subhanahu wa taala. So what is this saying? This is saying that one of the attributes of Allah Subhanahu wa taala is that He is موصوفة قدم. He is one of His to be careful, uh, attributes of negation is that he is without beginning, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is without beginning. And the Quran is the speech of Allah. And because it's the speech of Allah, the actual Quran is without beginning. This is the idea. There's a big, it's, we don't need to get into it, but this was the big fitna of Imam Ahmed and um, in his time period was this issue of the creation of the Qur'an, the createdness of the Qur'an. And basically this one group took that position, the Mu'tazila, who are the extreme rationalists, who most of the arguments of like people today who go on Arab television and Desi television and talk about the Qur'an and reject hadith and stuff like that, they're just essentially recycling the arguments of the Mu'tazila. But since our scholastic tradition has become so weak, we don't even realize that that's what's happening anymore. But if you go and you read, like you watch one of these shows and then you go read a book from 1100 years ago, the same arguments are being made and they've already been responded to. But in any case, uh, the Mu'tazila took this position that the Quran is created and then they influenced the government and they made it so that all of the scholars had to take this position or they would be killed or they would be tortured. And Imam Ahmed, that's why they call him basically like Nasir Sunnah or Things like this. He's the one who gave victory to the position of Ahl Sunnah and Jama'ah and held out torture and imprisonment, but he held his position over the course of three caliphs, three rulers. He, he withstood, and then eventually the thing passed, and everyone like, went back to what it was supposed to be. Anyways, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is without beginning, the Quran is without beginning, and yet when we recite it, what we recite, of course, is here. 
So he says, revealed within time, yet pre-eternal. So it's revealed in, in time, but the actual Quran is pre-eternal. Don't worry about it. Even I have a hard time understanding this argument. They are not connected with time, yet they inform us about the resurrection and about Ad and Iram. So these, these, the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not connected to time in and of itself because Allah is not bound by time. He's the creator of time. He's the creator of space. So you can't take the box of time and space and try to put it around Allah. This is one of the, it's hard to conceptualize, but a lot of our problems come from this actually. It's like a subtle anthropomorphism, right? If you're going to subject Allah to time and space, then you're making Allah a created thing. In an, like if you're going to do that in the first place. So Allah is not subject to time and space. And these verses are outside of time and space in a sense, in that you know, the wording is hard to use. But, and yet they tell us about things that will happen in the future and things that happened in the past. Because to Allah, it's all the same in his infinite knowledge. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they give us still now these stories of the past, of the future. In the context of the Prophet stories of the past and of the near future and of the distant future are all miraculous. Of course, we can't verify the super far future ones, but we can verify the ones, for example, that happened in the time of the Prophet uh, where a verse from the Quran is revealed uh, about, for example, the battle between the Persians and the Romans. And it predicted the outcome, and then the outcome happened shortly afterwards. And the Prophet uh, couldn't have known that, obviously. There's details about things in the past before the Prophet that couldn't have been known to the Prophet. And again, even some of the arguments that people make are old arguments. So people will say, for example, that the Prophet sent them in Arabia, yeah, they didn't have knowledge of certain details of previous nations and stuff like that. But he went on these journeys to greater Syria in his youth and he met these, he met these monks and things and they're the ones who taught him. Right? And the Quran actually answered this. Right? They said, what the Quran said about it, uh, Allah says in the Quran about it, that they say that he learned from these people, but those people didn't speak Arabic and this is in Arabic. Like they didn't even speak the same language. The people that you're saying, he learned all the details of all of these things, they're not even speaking the same language. So, the, you know, there's the Prophet gave us knowledge of things that came, came to pass, gave us knowledge of things that happened in the past that we were not super aware of, and then also told us things that will happen on the Day of Judgment. And all of that, again, is from uh, the Nubuwa. It's from the Nubuwa. It's from the uh, knowledge of prophecy, prophecies that they give, the prophets give prophecy of things that will come. Damat ladayna fafaqat kulla mu'ajizatin min al-nabiyyina if ja'at walam tadun. They remained with us, thus surpassing every miracle of the other prophets which came but did not last. So these, these verses of the Qur'an they stayed with us, and so they passed every miracle of the other prophets which came but did not last. So one of the basic things that we always say, right, is that Allah, when he sends prophets, he gives them miracles. Those miracles were prophets that came before the prophets, and alone why they were sent them were miracles that were bound by the time and place that they lived in and influenced by what was important to those people. So magic was important to the people of Musa, Allah gave him miracles that dealt with that looked like magic, but the people who knew it knew that it wasn't. Uh, medicine and healing was important to the people of Sayyidina Isa salam, and Allah gave him miracles that were connected to that uh, or related to that. Of course, they're miraculous, they weren't healing. And the Prophet, his people loved language, 
And uh, the, the, the language of the Prophet then, of course, the Quran is revealed in beautiful language. Um, as a side note, it's important to pay attention to these things. Like, again, just like we were saying that if we want to really understand who the Prophet is, we have to develop an appreciation for good character. If we don't have an appreciation for it in the first place, we can't know the Prophet If we don't develop an appreciation for beautiful language, and when a word is used in the right place, and when it's used in the wrong place, and what that does, and so on and so forth, we can't actually also appreciate the hadith of the Prophet or the Qur'an. Uh, if you like to read on these things, Elements of Style is a very famous work that's really good. It'll give you like really simple examples that show you, like you see a sentence said in three, four different ways, and one of them is the one that's famous. And you can't really put your finger on it. Like, what is it that made this sentence not that sentence? It's hard, but there's something there that makes it so powerful, subhanAllah. So the Qur'an is, is a miracle of language, and it remained. Because it was words and its content and uh, structure, nadam and ma'anam, the Quran. So it, uh, that remains as a miracle, whereas the miracles of the other prophets did not remain. The Prophet said, There is no prophet, but he was given something by which people believed in him. And that which I have been given is revelation revealed to me by Allah. So among them, I hope to have the most followers on the day of resurrection. Okay, to want good. It's also something important. Like, yeah, we should be humble, humble and stuff, but it's okay to want good. Right? Like the, the Prophet ﷺ told us there's ghibta. Ghibta is not... It's, it's an envy that's not bad. Like hasid is when you see something that someone else has and you don't want them to have it. And ghibta is when you see something that someone else has that's good, and you don't want them to lose it, and you want it too. And the Prophet taught us that we should have this kind of envy in, in a number of different places. One of them is in a person who Allah gives them the Qur'an, and they recite it day and night. So you don't want them to lose it, but you want that too. Like subhanAllah, sometimes you look at people, uh, Shaykh Abdullah is an example, Hafizahullah, who have a really special relationship with the Qur'an, and you're like, man, I wish I could have that. Like they can keep it, that's fine. <laughs> but I wish I could have that. Like just to be able to, sometimes you see these amazing parties or parties and you're like, man, I wish I could recite like that and memorize like that. And you just, I, I would just sit in the living room and just recite. Forget all this other stuff. We could do that, it'd be beautiful. Another, another group that the Prophet mentioned is people who Allah gave them wealth and they spend it for Allah's sake. This is something also that's good to look up to. And be like, Mashallah, that person makes millions of dollars and they're able, because of that, to give huge amounts in charity. That's a wonderful thing. I wish I could do that. They can keep it too. I wish I could have it too. So it's okay to want great things. The Prophet is saying, I hope that on the day of judgment, I'll have the biggest ummah. That's okay. He said that. Sayyidina Sulaiman, what was his dua? Sometimes I think about his dua. It's like the most baller dua ever. Okay. Does it have to be heavy? Uh, stuff. No, it's not Quran. But yes, it's beautiful. It still deserves to be respected. Sorry about the difference. He said, oh Allah, give me a dominion the likes of which nobody after me will ever have. You are the one who gives. That's like, <laughs> talk about like going for, he said, give me power that no one ever will have after me. And he said, that was his dua. That's a, that's a scary dua, you know. The one time this dua made like really a lot, this dua really hit home for me was when I made Hajj. Because, you know, it's like uh, my, my undergrad degree was in third world studies. I basically specialized in studying people who got beat down by colonialism. And then you go to Hajj and you feel like this is the meeting of the global south. Like all these lands that were destroyed under, um, 
under colonialism and all these people whose properties were taken and their resources were stripped and their systems and institutions were devastated and their people were broken and like here they are all in one place and just like breaks your heart. Alhamdulillah, mashallah. The good side of it is that people are super resilient and they can handle like anything. You know, you see like old people in hedge with nothing sleeping on the side of the road and they're chilling. Like they're not, <laughs> like maybe they're not the happiest people in the world, but they're not upset about it. They're like, they're okay. Like they just sleep and they get up and they go and they do their thing and they go visit the Prophet and they cry their, cry their eyes out and they waited their whole life for this and they're like better than we are. But still you look at it and you're like, this is wrong. You know, like for the people to be like that. So that's when like Suleiman's du'a really hit me. I mean, so like Allah, give like this ummah power and thing. Give this ummah wealth. Give this ummah leadership that doesn't squander all of its resources. Give this ummah izzah. Give this ummah karama. You know, so that like there can be dignity in these things. And you know, this is like sometimes we're so. Sometimes people will go to like Turkey, for example, and they're like, "Why do they spend all that money on the masjid?" You just pause for a moment, ask yourself what you feel when you go into that masjid. Like in Egypt, for example, they redid the, the burial place of Imam al-Shafi'i recently. They made it very beautiful. I saw pictures and stuff. People are like, why did they waste all this money on it? Yeah, there are poor people. They could use the money, so on and so forth. But you should feel something when you go to the burial site of Imam al-Shafi'i. I know we don't need to get into the stuff about it. But like, these are special places. Um, there's like, anyways. I don't even know where it was. The book. One of the, one of the, a friend of mine his when he was in grade school, his father was taking him to school and he had his backpack full of his books. And he was sitting in the front seat and he put his books on the floor of the front seat next to his feet, like his backpack on the floor, the car. And his dad told him, pick up the books off the floor, pick up the backpack, put it on your lap. He told him, Dad, like there's no Quran in here. It's just like my math book, my science book, my social studies book, whatever. And he said, even if there's no Quran in your backpack, there's knowledge in your backpack. You don't put it down by your feet. You don't uh, put it on your back. And subhanAllah has stayed with him his whole life. He's a, he's a hand, one of the handful of shiuch that, uh, may Allah, let's just say may Allah protect him and his family. Keep forgetting it. I looked it up recently and I still can't remember it. There's a beautiful dua that Sayyidina Omar made. I think I mentioned this recently. When Sayyid ibn Amr was leading a land and the people complained about him. And Omar called him to hear the complaints and respond to them. And he made this beautiful dua. Um, it's basically along the lines of like, the meaning of it is, oh Allah, I think well of this man, so don't like, don't break my love, like my respect for him, my my the way I feel about him, preserve that. Like Omar made that dua, Subhanallah, it's really amazing. Yeah, because our heart gets broken a lot with these things. So may Allah protect the person I was mentioning and his family, keep them from all harm. محكمات فما تبقين من شبه لذي شقاق ما تبغين من حكم حكم sorry حكم unequivocal verses leaving no doubt to remain in dissenters and requiring no arbiter so this gets at a point maybe I'll end on this point this gets at an issue in the Quran of the idea of there are verses that Allah refers to as being محكمات and there are verses that Allah refers to as mutashabihat. That there are verses that are clear, unequivocal, and there are verses that are, let's say, not so clear. They lend to various interpretations and possibilities. Um, something that's muhkam can also mean that it's perfect. So it's, it's, it's unequivocal, it's clear, but it's also perfect. So what this verse is saying is that the verses of the Qur'an, they don't leave any doubt. And um, for the person who's being honest, for the person that's being sincere, 
and honest, then uh, they realize that there's truth in this. I think it's in the end of Surah um, Surah Qaf. Anyone's memorization of Surah Qaf? In there, anyone have istihdar of it? The last verse. Um, anyone? Any takers? I can't remember. Uh, basically, I think it's there, but there's it's a verse that says that the Quran is dikra for the one who is a believer, which is interesting, right? Like it's a reminder for the one who believes in it. For the one who doesn't believe in it, they'll see different things in it. And this is like one of those things that sometimes it's hard for people to understand, but there is some truth to like this issue of you get what you're looking for. Yes, there's things that are absolutely bad. Yes, there's things that are absolutely good, but there is a level at which we get what we're looking for in our perspective the angle that we decide to look from affects what we see. And uh, there's a story again of Sayyidina Omar about that, that a man came to him from a land and he asked him, what did you find in that land? And the guy said, we didn't find anything but good. People were amazing and they were doing good things and so on and so forth, all positive things. And the man left. Another person came from the same land. He said, what did you find in that place? And he said, all bad things. Found this and that and these people were this and so on and so forth. And then they left. My person was with Sayyidina Omar and asked him, like, so how do they have answers that are so different? He said, each of them found what they were looking for. One of them wanted to see, like, good, they found good. One of them wanted to see bad, they found bad. Is there, is there always good? Yes, there's always good. Is there always bad? Yes, there's always bad. So there is a level at which, like, we want to, without being naive, without putting ourselves in vulnerable positions, without, you know, doing all of those kind of things, but I do want to see the good because I want to be able to invest in that and push that. Anyways, muhkamat. Allah says in the Quran uh, about this in the beginning of Surah Ali Imran, a very important verse because it gives us an insight to human psychology. Uh, what is it? Everything is from Allah. The meaning of the verses is the following. Allah says the book, this is the, this is the Quran. It has verses that are absolutely clear. It has verses that lend to various interpretations. The people who are strong in their knowledge, they say, we believe in all of this, it's all from Allah. They take this, they say, this is all from Allah. We take this from Allah. Now, I understand it, I don't understand it. Even if I don't know exactly what this means, it's from Allah, right? This is what they say, like the most common interpretation of like, what does Alif Lam mean? mean? People give different possibilities or whatever, but in the end, they're like, we don't know, it's from Allah. Allah is telling us, this is from me. You know, it's, it's clear when I want it to be clear. And then there's other verses, they're mutashabihat. They're not as clear. Then he gives a description. So the people who are firm in knowledge are the ones that say this is all from Allah. And they, they, they focus on, in a sense, the muhkamat. They focus on the things that they know that are clear. And then there's another group of people. Those who have some sort of thing in their heart, they have a little something that's off inside, for whatever reason. Doesn't necessarily mean that we have to judge them or something, or ourselves. But there's something that's off. They follow those things that are unclear, seeking discord, and seeking to interpret things in strange ways. And you see this, subhanAllah. And you see what happens to the person. It says, take it from the Qur'an, take it from everyday life. If you, even if you want to completely secularize this point, completely secularize this point. In life, there are things that we know very clearly. And there are things that we're not sure of. Like, for example, maybe I have a relationship with someone. It's been good. I have reason to trust them. I have reason to believe in them. 
I have reason to think they're a person of good character, so on and so forth. Then I have an interaction with them that raises some questions. What do I know? I know that I'm not talking about like, I'm not talking about things that we think we know, but we don't really have any business knowing them, right? But sometimes we think we know something, but we don't really have any. It was like we spent some time with someone, they said some jokes that we liked, and now they're trustworthy. No, it doesn't make them trustworthy. They said something that was inspiring. Now I'm going to like turn my life over to them. No, that's not. The, I'm talking about like you've done business with the person, you spent time with the person, you lived with the person, you traveled with the person. There's water under the bridge. You've been in arguments. You've seen how they are when they're in arguments. You've seen how they deal with money. You have reason to trust them. And then something else happens where you're like, oh, that's strange. Or something happens where it upsets you a little bit. So which one are you going to put stock in right now? If you, have to, if you put stock in the mutashabin, which is the thing that you're like, mm, I'm not sure, you're going to go crazy. In this extreme example, I'm not talking about, you know, again, other, there's other situations where this doesn't apply so clearly. But I'm saying that there are things that we know. And if every single time something goes a little bit different than I expected, I throw out everything that I know, it's going to be a really rocky life. Like it's going to be really tough. I'm not going to have anything to stand on. And the Prophet said this as well in a hadith. Uh, Leave that which causes you doubt for that which does not cause you doubt. So what is it that you're building on? I'm building on that which does not cause me doubt. Like this is where I'm going to put my emphasis. This is where I'm going to put my work. This is where I'm going to put my effort. And those things that I'm not so sure about, inshallah, they'll become clear with time. I'll kind of, you know, watch them. But I, I want to focus on the things that I know. Okay. This is extremely important in our religion. There's, there's certain things that are non-negotiable. Part of the reason why we study the Prophet is because we want to know who he was. We want to know how we should be. But we also want to know what are things that are not negotiable with people. Right? Like there's certain lines you're not going to cross them. I don't care who you are. And that line is going to still be there. Because that's the line that the Prophet put in the sand. It's not me that put it in the sand. It's not you that put it in the sand. The Prophet put this in the sand. Like uh, three signs that if a person has them, they have some hypocrisy in them. And if they have all of them, then they're a full hypocrite. Not that you should make them a non-Muslim anymore, but like they're serious things. What are they? If they speak, they lie. If they're given a trust, they break the trust. And if you get into an argument with them, they blow up. Literally is the word. Like they literally blow up. And you've seen this. I'm sure you've seen this. If people, you, you get in an argument with them and then it's like, like we were just talking about do you put the toilet paper up or down? <laughs> like it wasn't that big of a thing. It was just toilet paper up or toilet paper down. And they're like, I'm toilet paper down. And they just like lost it on you. Or the other famous one that everyone loves. Do you put cereal first or milk first? We're just talking about that and people lose it. You know, should we, uh, you know, the majlis is starting to meet again and we need to set up the rugs and the speaking place. Like, should we sit here or should we sit there? And you get in an argument with the person, this didn't happen, alhamdulillah, just to be clear, this didn't happen. But you get in an argument, you get in a difference of opinion with the person, they completely lose it. Like, my trust in you is going to go down. Malish. I mean, maybe you can make it back, but it's going to go down. If every time the person talks, they lie. If every time you give them a trust, they break the trust, or they don't follow through on it, or they share things they're not supposed to share. You know? They say, Sudur al-Ahrar, Qubur al-Asrar. It's a beautiful statement. It has two facets, by the way. It's, it's, uh, they say that the, the, the chest of free men and women, free men and women are the people who are free from everything but Allah. The hur, this is what hur is in the Islamic tradition. Hur in the Islamic tradition is they, they have no ta'aluqat except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're only connected to Allah. So they're, they're truly free. The free person is someone who their heart is a grave site of secrets. The outward interpretation of that is when you give them a trust that they shouldn't be sharing with someone else, they don't spill it. That's the outward interpretation of it. 
The inward interpretation of it is that Allah gives them insight, spiritual insight on things, and they don't say anything about it. They keep it to themselves. They don't disclose it. This happens. Sometimes maybe someone has spiritual, it's scary, but someone might see someone else and know this is someone that they've had a difficulty with this or that, or they've had a challenge with this or that, or whatever it might be. They can see it in their face. Allah gives it to them in their heart. Or you think they're going to tell the person? They, then they're never going to have a secret in their heart again. So, but they break the trust. It's a red line. Right? They break the trust. They lie when they speak, so on and so forth. Um, these are muhkamat. These are things that are absolutely clear. Absolutely clear is that I need to work on myself before I'm worrying about everyone else. Yeah, we should engage with other people, help other people, so on and so forth. But I have to fix myself. If I'm like really unstable, I can't, you know, if I'm really unstable, I need to figure out how to stabilize myself. I'm really unhappy. I need to figure out how to make, how to get some level of contentment. Not happiness, but contentment. And whatever it might be. Those are priorities. You know? So these are muhkamat, things I should be focusing on. Like community has XYZ problem. Another one, big one, good one for community leadership. Community has XYZ problem. Really trying to figure out how to solve it. I'm not really sure what the solution is going to be to it. There's a little bit of lack of clarity on it. What is the thing I know? My family has this issue that I'm personally responsible for that I need to deal with and I'm never like there to deal with what I need to do. So one is clear, the other one is not so clear. Allah help us. If you have any comments or questions, I would really like it. I would really even like comments more than questions because um, we come to a richer understanding by that. All of us come to a better understanding by that. If we have comments, we have reflections, have complaints. Say so you said this, it didn't make sense to me. I might hear it and be like, no, you're right, it didn't make sense. Maybe. Anyone have anything? How does the Noe Hadith of like a lot of certain things off and certain things uh, like limits left things unanswered? It wasn't done out of mistake. I don't remember exactly. I'm paraphrasing. But how does that play into it? Yeah. Uh... Allah has laid out certain obligations, so do them, and he's made certain limits, so don't go past them, and he's been uh, silent on certain things, not out of not knowing, but out of mercy, basically, so don't search on them. There's different narrations on this. How does that relate to this topic? There's different interpretations for this. This is related also to the question of uh, the hadith that talk about asking too many questions. That is also related to this. You know, people before you were destroyed because they asked too many questions. Some scholars interpreted this to mean during the life of the Prophet. But during the life of the Prophet, the revelation is ongoing. So if something needs to be addressed, it's going to be addressed. Don't you don't have to like actively search for it because it's going to get responded to. And if something has happened and no revelation came, no verse from the Quran came, nothing came from the Prophet, you don't need to go into that. That's why actually the companions around the Prophet, they essentially didn't ask questions. They watched. If a verse came, if the Prophet told them something, they would engage with it afterwards, but otherwise they stay quiet. This is one. Uh, interpretation on it. Another way maybe to look at these issues of like uh, that which there is nothing said about it is that in certain things, so if we look at like the body of the teachings of the religion put acts of worship on one side, we have daily life on the other side. In daily life, if there's no uh, 
particular guidance on it, the assumption is that it's okay. Do you have to ask about it? No, that's our, it's, it's, the ruling on it is clear because there was no ruling on it. And she said, it's okay. So like back in the day when, uh, when the community was different, people used to ask like, how come your wife speaks in public? And actually the community wasn't different. I don't know, part of the reason why all this drama happened in ICOI was because my wife was speaking in public. I don't know, but anyways, um, people are like, so what's your evidence? Like, what's yours? I mean, like, we're talking, like, your framing is off, actually. The framing is, speaking is not, it's like not an act of worship, right? It's just like existing, is not an act of worship. Speaking is not an act of worship. I don't need an evidence to prove that a woman can speak. You need an evidence to prove that a woman can't speak. Okay, so, so in the first place, like, you're asking me the wrong question. So is that, is that clear? It's clear because there was nothing said about it, right? Or in the verses that were there, you know, interpretation, but they seem to apply to the, the wives of the prophet. I don't know. These are some thoughts about it. It's a good question. Do you have anything to add? Or? Just for the look, you know, you get what you're looking for. So things that are not mentioned, there's no reason. Is there a reason to seek out if there's something clearly there? Yeah, I, I would say the issue with this is that we don't always know if there's something there. Like we not we might not be aware of it because we're not uh, we just we didn't we're not well versed in it. So, but I think that um, there's a point at which you realize like I just need to learn how to function, and if there's something that I should try to get some sort of decent understanding of my religion. And after that, if something feels off to me or feels wrong to me, then I should ask somebody. Maybe there's something I missed. And Allah is kidding. I mean, I was thinking about this recently because I was with some people. And this is going to be, I'm trying to figure out how to say this in a way that doesn't come off wrong. A big part of how the companions of the Prophet learned how to function in life as believers was being with the Prophet. Because when they're with the Prophet, they see how to respond to different situations and they see what they should be like really concerned about and what's not a big deal. Okay. If we have good religious teachers who we trust, who are like responsible, reasonable people who understand their religion and are functional. By the way, functional, like whether or not a person is functional in society is an important condition for me and religious knowledge. It may sound funny a little bit, but the Prophet was very functional member of his society. He wasn't like dysfunctional, really like outcasted, didn't know how to function, how to deal with people, how to handle situations and stuff. He knew how to deal with things. So like, I want to see from someone who's has some level of religious learning that they can also function in the world. That's why sometimes the scholars in Egypt, we like them. People sometimes would be upset with them. Like they're a little bit crass on this or that or whatever. But like you see people who are extremely knowledgeable and they know when they should laugh and they know when they shouldn't. And they know when they should be serious and they know when they shouldn't. And they know when they need to like tell someone and they know when they need to tell someone like, Adish, it's okay. It was just like, shut up, you idiot. <laughs> and sometimes it's like, no, it's okay. They know how to do this. And they're like, subhanAllah, it's really interesting. Like, it's not haphazard. Like, they know the situation. They know when, like, in a class, when they should let people ask questions and when they shouldn't, because people just ask random questions and derail the whole thing. You know? Um, why were they saying this right now? Functionality and knowledge. Uh, so, the, um, I noticed in our community, Sometimes, especially for people who are like, they really want to take their religion seriously, but they haven't either. So here's what, if you want to take your religion seriously, and you haven't been around people of deep learning, nor have you learned in some sort of deep way, and you want to take things really seriously, it's very easy to get really anxious about a whole lot of things that don't really need to be anxious about. 
they're not really that big of a deal, you know? But you haven't seen, but you, you're like, I don't know, maybe it's like I was somewhere recently, beautiful people. And we were having a meal and Maghrib had come in like 20 minutes before that. And they needed to serve dessert and we started to, and they started to get worried like, maybe Sheikh is gonna get upset because we're delaying Maghrib too much and so on and so forth. And then I could hear them like saying this. I wasn't trying to eavesdrop, I just heard it. And then they came and they're like, is it okay if we, I'm like, yeah, it's totally fine. It's like we have plenty of time, it's okay. It's not a big deal. Like just finish the meal and inshallah Allah is kidding. We have plenty of time to pray. And we'll pray when it's time to pray. Everything's fine. But you could see like they're starting to get nervous about it. And uh, you know, uh, so, a lot of these things, they're quiet to give us space. Like, there's a sa, there's, there's space there. We can just live our lives and be okay and be comfortable. And it's okay. It's not, you know. like, religion shouldn't make us so uptight all the time. Yeah, we, like I said last week, we know when we need to take something seriously. And otherwise, we just see, alhamdulillah, just another day in the dunya, as Imam Zaid always says. Uh, there's a question online. Uh, anyone who's coming again for like the first time or whatever, and you don't know, there's a oh, there's a very important rule at the mentions. You leave and come whenever you want. There's no hard feelings. If you feel like I'm rambling forever and I'm taking too long and you you want to go, but you feel like it might be impolite, just go. It's okay. Everything is fine. Inshallah, it's going to be all right. Uh, unmute. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. Um, so in high school, I took a Bible as literature course. It was offered. Um, and I just wonder, do you think Quran could ever be looked at in a similar light, especially for um, non-religious purposes? And, and, and why do you think it is or not? What was the first part of it about literature? Um, in high school we had a course called Bible as literature and it is a common course offered. Okay. I don't know if it still is because of budget cuts or whatever, but I mean, everyone took it in high school and it was public school. So are you there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it was public school and everyone took it. Um, so I just wonder if like, could Quran ever be seen as literature in a similar light? Yeah. Yeah, good question. Um, so, she was saying that in, in school she took a class called Bible as Literature. And could the Quran ever be looked at in the same light and stuff? Actually, there's a lot of, this is a highly contentious topic, um, as you probably guessed. But I think that there's a middle ground. It, I think a lot of the, a lot of how we would look at it from like a believer perspective is obviously different than maybe general public might look at it. But what does it mean to look at something as literature would be the first question, right? Philosophically speaking. And then, but generally speaking, like in, in Muslim history, there, there is an idea of looking at the, the edibi elements of the Quran, the literature elements of the Quran. July 4th. Uh, the literary elements of the Quran and like trying to understand do like a literature based analysis of certain things but there's an understanding also that there's limits on that because because of who the author is subhanahu wa ta'ala so uh, there are people in the modern period especially who called for like a basically like modern literature analysis techniques and methods and philosophies we're just going to apply them to the Quran the Quran is a book of literature more than it's a book of revelation. And so obviously this has theological consequences, but um, that's as much as I can say about that. Yes. Comment like an Ibn Hariri. Yeah. Those are uh, generally respected in that, that genre. 
Mm. Is it exact or is it? I don't know. I'm, I'm, there's a lot of things I've forgotten, but I recall that from what I recall, the like the maqamat literature of I think in Hariri, and there's one other one that's famous I can't remember right now. People like when you talk to people of knowledge and stuff, they didn't have an issue with it. They even study it. They memorize them. In uh, I think in West Africa they memorize them in the comments like, so as a as a means of like building their knowledge of the Arabic language and stuff. Long so, but generally I, th I think it's okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, small request from my side. Please thank Allah for the weather, so that we can get more of this nice breeze <laughs> and this comfortable shade. And, uh, you know, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us shade in this life and the next, and give us comfort in this life and the next, and facilitate our affairs. Please be safe tonight.